difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here with Keith Phipps. Our regular co-hosts Tasha Robinson and Genevieve Kosky have gone missing, along with our cats, but we'll amble around for a while and find them in Mexico, maybe. In the meantime, we're broing out with our good friend and longtime co-worker, Noel Murray. Noel, welcome back to the show. Friends, it is great to be here. Wow. <laughs> Seems like it was only yesterday that we were recording uh, something on Nightmare Alley, right? That was the last one? Yeah, that must have been December, maybe. It's been a while. It's been a while, but uh, but I, I believe you're familiar with the filmmaker we are talking about today. Um, I've, I've heard of him, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so today we we're talking about a couple of low-key comic mysteries, including Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. But given that Noel is a huge Altman fan and considers McCabe and Mrs. Miller his favorite film of all time, or close to it, I wanted to ask you guys a question. What's a non-obvious Altman gem that you'd like to recommend to people? Taking films like McCabe and Nashville off the table. I mean, my favorite kind of unseen Altman film, unfortunately, is not widely available, which is A Perfect Couple, mm. um, which came towards the end of his uh, 70s era. It's a romantic comedy. It's one of his few films that's kind of set in the modern day in, in Los Angeles. And I wish that was more available. And if it ever does become so, like if it shows up on TCM or whatever, jump on it because it is, it is a, a wonder. But I will go ahead and add my recommendation for a couple of late period Altman films, because I actually think that he really, right towards the end of his career and his life, began sort of funneling his general sort of aesthetic and his obsessions with watching a bunch of people interact and, and uh, just sort of enjoying having really good actors just kind of bounce off each other. That sort of became what his films were really about. And so I think that two of his final films, The Company and uh, A Prairie Home Companion, both of which are available to stream mm -hmm. in various formats, both of which have problematic elements in that a, The Company has uh, James Franco <laughs> and A Prairie Home <laughs> Companion is a, is a Gar Garrison Keillor. Uh, two dudes who have been, have, have been, you know, roundly canceled. But nevertheless, uh, they're both uh, really wonderful films. And I think both of them have no plot. It's just kind of Altman just watching people have fun. And they really kind of, I think, speak to what I, what I loved about his aesthetic and his movies. And so, um, yeah, The Company and uh, Premium Companion. So maybe work backward, but work backwards in the old. Yeah, exactly. Keith, what about you? I'm such a soft touch for Altman that like there are movies that people don't like that I, I'll champion like uh, Dr. T and the women for one. I know it's a reviled movie in some circles, but, but I don't know. I like it. You know, uh, even Kansas city, I think Kansas city, but, but I mean, but let's, let's, I'll go the opposite direction from, from Noldo as uh, I, you know, he has such a great run. It's hard in the early seventies. It's hard to see like, what is like the, sub like what what's under the radar there but i do like i do feel like maybe thieves like us gets lost a little bit in the shuffle there and it's kind of like his take on 
lovers uh, lovers on the lamb movie and and you know in in true altman fashion it's it's not what you expect from that it focuses on things that you don't think that such a movie would do it's got a really sweet relationship between keith carradine and shelly duvall's characters i think it, it is a it's a gem gentlemen a gem <laughs> i guess is one way <laughs> i one know way it's a, it. i know it's a gem because that was going to be my pick as well <laughs> uh, now, well i think i think it, make, it also makes a great double feature with they live by night the nicholas ray version uh sure. adaptation of, yeah. of the same the same novel and extremely different film so i all right if i stole that from you yeah i don't know what, what am i supposed to I'll do just let you ha- i'll just let you have it I'm supposed we're, to champion we're, buffalo, we're just, buffalo bill and the indian indians or sitting bull's history lesson <laughs> secret uh, honor. let's just say secret honor or we'll say <laughs> okay. cookie's fortune how about cookie's fortune that's a good one we're all kind of roughly the same age and so i think we all kind of <laughs> remember that moment when a lot of the altman films that for the longest time you could not mm. find in the video store Started showing up, Thieves yeah. Like Us being a case in California point. Split, man. That was, like my, Split. that was a white whale for so long. And then I saw it, like a, you're supposed to see it, like like in Letterboxd. And it was just sensational. And that's the thing. It's like he's like Leone. He's, he's, I think, one of the directors that suffers the most from being cropped and panned and scanned, which Thieves Like Us is one you could watch in the VHS era. But I think it's like Nashville, I think, are kind of borderline incomprehensible without uh, in, in the pre-Letterboxd era. Yeah. And for the longest time, like the only Altman I could find in the video store were like the 80s films. Like those were easy to find. But the ones that were the classics, you know, Beyond Nashville and McCabe, Mrs. Miller and MASH, like even The Long Goodbye was not easy to, to locate when we were all growing up. So when Thieves Like Us became available, California Split now shows up on TCM all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I saw that like you know, the Criterion Channel, like California Split and The Long Goodbye for a long time have been like two of their most popular movies whenever they're available on, on Criterion. So, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. they have staying power. These all they films. do. They do. Yeah. Well, I'll, and I'll spare everyone the story of when I took my entire family to see Ready to Wear Christmas Day. Uh, <laughs> that <laughs> one actually went, it went over better than you might expect. Actually, I know it wasn't one of those they ridiculed me. Yeah, for that, forever, that one but. does not does not hold up. I mean, I'm an Altman, <laughs> Altman apologist. I love Dr. King and the women. I will not stand up for Ready to Wear. <laughs> Okay. But well, it does know, have a line like someone's. I forget which character says that. Like that we have some of our best fashion doctors on it. <laughs> That's a line that always makes me laugh. But uh, yeah, it's a rough one. Well, the, well, the long goodbye used to be one of those uh, hidden Altman gems, but now it feels canonical. Keith, want to tell our listeners why we're coming back to it for this set of episodes? Sure. You may not know it based on the half-hearted marketing campaign, but there's a new Fletch movie for the first time since Chevy Chase played the role twice in the 1980s. But with Day Trippers director Greg Matola behind the camera and John Hamm in the title role, Confess Fletch has a low-key, shaggy dog quality that's more in keeping with Gregory McDonald's original novels. Matola's offbeat approach to the gumshoe thriller has less in common with the 1985 Fletch than it does with a film like The Long Goodbye, a California noir in which Elliot Gould plays Philip Marlowe as a chain-smoking private detective who's like a magnet for trouble, but that's okay with him. So this week, we'll follow Marlowe as he lopes around from an all-night grocery store to the beaches of Malibu to Mexico City and gets to the bottom of a surprisingly complex mystery. Then we'll follow Erwin Fletcher from Rome to Boston as he untangles an art robbery and tries to get himself acquitted from a murder rap. Keith and I are going to pause for a moment to crack open a can of very specific food for our cats, but we'll talk Altman after the break. Invites your eye to come her way. 
gonna be a lot of people looking for me as a result of my lovely wife. If it was a murderer, he murdered his wife. That's a lie. I know he didn't kill and, her. He couldn't kill anybody. It's a minor crime, a minor crime, a misdemeanor to kill your wife. The major crime is he stole my money. Your friend stole my money, and the penalty for that is capital punishment. Even as she smiles a quick hello, you let her go. I like your face, too. Could you find my husband for me, please, Mr. Mahler? You let the moment fly. I'm a man cannot stand confinement. Who the hell are you? Well, I'm this your private investigator who was sent here this afternoon to uh, find you. Did you come here to see me or my wife? It's not his business. Write the check, Roger. What check? Write the check, Roger. Whoa. you turn your head, you know you said the long goodbye. Never learn. You're a born loser. What do you think, Mabel? Ow! If you have any trouble, I'll back you up. I have fresh evidence now for you to reopen the Terry Lennox case. You ever think about suicide, Marlboro? Me? I don't believe in it. Director Robert Altman reportedly did not even finish reading Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye in the lead up to making the film, though he did commission Lee Brackett who'd helped adapt Chandler's The Big Sleep for Howard Hawks to write the screenplay. Quote, I read the end of the book in the beginning, Altman said, but I didn't read it all the way through. End quote. Instead, he gave copies of Raymond Chandler's speaking, uh, the, the book that is, uh, to the cast and crew and wanted them to read through Chandler's literary essays. Altman's biographer, Patrick McGilligan, put it this way in his book Jumping Off the Cliff, quote, As always with Altman, Chandler was not the point so much as a means to a certain end, end quote. Altman anticipated that Chandler fans would reject the long goodbye, particularly his conception of Philip Marlowe as what he called, quote-unquote, Rip Van Marlowe, a bedraggled loser who seems to fumble his way to the bottom of a case, despite having much keener instincts than his passive demeanor might suggest. Chandler's conception of Marlowe wouldn't have a place in 1970s Hollywood, so Altman made him into a character who would. To quote the opening narration of the Coen brothers' The Big Lebowski, which owes a huge debt to Altman's film, quote, Sometimes there's a man, well, he's a man for his time and place. He fits right in there. And that's the dude in Los Angeles, end quote. Replace the dude for Marlowe in the late 90s for the mid-70s, and the overall vibe is more or less the same. The Long Goodbye chooses to back into its mystery, which is both a fine indication of its intent and a reflection of the passivity that guides Elliot Gould's Marlowe. Before Marlowe gets embroiled in connected murder and missing person cases, he has to contend first with his needy cat, who's the only companion he has in his conspicuously shabby L.A. bachelor pad. It's 3 a.m., and the cat has awakened Rip Van Marlowe from his slumber, harassing him until it gets some curry brand cat food. He tries to improvise dinner out of a plate of not-quite-spoiled cottage cheese, but the animal bats it off the counter, sending Marlowe out to a 24-hour grocery store in the middle of the night to get him his preferred food. When the store doesn't have curry brand cat food, Marlowe asks the clerk about it. The clerk replies, What do we need a cat for? I've got a girl. The indignities don't end for poor Marlowe there. The cat rejects his effort to sneak a different brand into a curry can. But trouble does finally arrive at his doorstep. His buddy Terry Lennox, played by ex-ball player and Ball 4 author Jim Booten, shows up asking for a ride to Tijuana and Marlowe obliges, no questions asked. Upon his return, however, the police turn up to arrest Marlowe for aiding in Terry's escape. 
It turns out that Terry is suspected of murdering his rich wife, Sylvia. Marlowe gets released from jail a few days later after Terry reportedly committed suicide in Mexico, but Marlowe doesn't believe that Terry is dead any more than he believes Terry killed his wife. Meanwhile, at the very same Malibu Beach community where Terry lived, Marlowe is hired by Eileen Wade, played by Nina Von Palant, to find her missing husband Roger, played by Sterling Hayden. A boozy, Hemingway-like author on a bad streak, Roger tends to slip off to rehab facilities every once in a while to dry himself out, but Eileen hasn't seen him in a week, and he doesn't appear to be in the usual places. While it doesn't take Marlowe long to find Roger at a local clinic, a whole host of odd characters start to surface, from Henry Gibson as a sketchy clinic doctor named Dr. Verringer, to Mark Rydell as a Jewish gangster named Marty Augustine. Not surprisingly, there are some connections to be found between Terry's case and the Wades. Photographed in a smoggy haze by Vilmos Zygmunt, a look that, on top of The Big Lebowski, had a great deal of impact on other films like Inherent Vice and Greenberg, The Long Goodbye is about vibes, as the kids today might say. Marlowe may be out of touch with post-hippie SoCal culture, as represented by the oft-naked yoga and pot enthusiasts next door, but as he says, it's okay with me. He floats through Los Angeles as a detached commenter on his surroundings, and much of what he mumbles is hilariously observational. But he takes advantage of being underestimated, and nearly always has a better read on the situation than he lets on. That's the edge that being branded a loser gives him. He also cares even more than we in the audience might expect. When Marty Augustine maims his own girlfriend just to make a point, it rattles him. When he discovers what really happens to Terry, it enrages him. Maybe everything isn't okay with Marlowe. Maybe everything isn't okay with the 70s Hollywood culture in which he occupies. Perhaps Rip Von Marlowe has finally woken from his slumber. We'll talk about it after the break. Uh, may I help you, please? Uh, yeah, I'm looking for a patient uh, named Roger Wade. There's no one here with that name. Well, yeah, he may not be using that name. Uh, this is a picture of him. Do you recognize the face? There's no one here that looks like that. You look just like my great-aunt Esther. She passed on a couple of years ago. Uh, is Dr. Verringer around? Uh, Dr. Verringer is out of town. Out of town? In Phoenix. Phoenix, Arizona. May I ask who you are? Certainly. I'm just some guy looking for Dr. Verringer. Those ladies are a lot of help. Crazy ladies. It's okay with me. So The Long Goodbye wasn't very well received when it came out, but now it's widely acknowledged as part of Altman's peak creative period in the early to mid-1970s. How do you account for the journey the film's reputation has taken? I think it's a couple of reasons. For one thing, this, weirdly enough, is one of the more accessible, I think, Altman films, because for all the liberties that he takes with the detective genre and the gumshoe hero, I do think that he actually does more or less follow a lot of Raymond Chandler's original plots. So there is a, a story. And Altman is not super into story. I mean, he's, he's often said, or he did when he was alive, <laughs> um, he often said that he preferred, you know, behavior. He was fascinated by humans and what they did more so than he was in, you know, stories that were being told. But he nevertheless, you know, kind of hewed to, or at least he and I guess the screenwriter, is that Lee Brackett who did the screen, mm -hmm. screenplay for this? Yeah. Um, you know, hewed to, you know, the book. And so there is actually a, myst a mystery there. And one of the great things about detective stories is that you can do a lot with those kind of stories because you have 
the hook of whodunit or um, why did they do it or how did they do it, whatever it might be, you have that mystery that can kind of pull, pull people along. And so all the Altman touches are in The Long Goodbye, but they're yoked to something where people can actually follow the story all the way through to the end. And I will add one more thing. This kind of came in the period where he was doing sort of genre deconstructions almost like once a year, essentially. He did his Western mm-hmm. with McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um, he did, you know, his detective story with The Long Goodbye, the gangster movie with Thieves Like Us, like Keith mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, that also was kind of a hook that Altman was able, able to provide for that, you know, 1970s period where he took, you know, very familiar genres and put his own spin on them, his own kind of like knuckling spin uh, on the films. <laughs> yeah. I think in terms of why it wasn't that well received, I, I think it might just been a matter of Altman was kind of flooding the zone after MASH. I mean, there's just movie after movie. And like MASH was a huge popular success. And then, you know, it's followed by Brewster McCloud. And like, you know, if you're a MASH fan who shows up for more of the same and you get Brewster McCloud, really one of the most peculiar films in his filmography or really anyone's filmography, I think uh, that you're going to be confused. I mean, Images is basically an experimental film. I like that movie a lot, but you can see why that would not uh, be a hit with audiences. I think also I feel like Elliot Gould's star, if I'm not wrong, had kind of cooled a little bit at this point. Like he, he had had uh, kind of picked up a reputation as being difficult and some of his films had not been, you know, post-MASH had not been a huge success. So I can see why maybe you're going to run into that to that issue, but I don't know. It's, it's a pretty great movie. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the, the Gould thing is definitely true. It was a, it actually took quite a bit of doing just to get him cast in the in that role because there was a, a lot of distrust about whether he, you know he had the mental capacity to uh pull off the role uh but of course Altman felt strongly that he could play the role well and he was certainly right in that i mean i think i think maybe with altman and it's just I mean, Altman is is somebody who's going to do everything differently than you might expect. And filmmakers who do that, who who shake up expectations, their films are not necessarily going to be loved uh, right away. Maybe that's kind of what happened here, as it happened with other films in his career. And uh, you know, certainly other filmmakers, Kubrick being another, who who just you know they're ahead, of, they're kind of ahead of the their, the curve on the, with their own work, and it just kind of takes people a little bit of time to catch up. But I think I think Noel is also also right that it, the long by is not a difficult sit really. It's it's fun. It's it's easy to it's you know easy to follow for this type of a story. It's uh it's so, so it is kind of surprising that it didn't connect right away because it, I, I I think it's a good time. But maybe but maybe that's just me. Also, I, I feel like the even though a lot of that uh, Marlowe's you know dialogue is mumbly, that's part of his character. This is not a case either where the soundtrack is terribly muddy in terms of uh, a lot of you know voices being laid on top of each other. It's it's a fairly clean recording by his standards. I've read a lot of stories about, you know, how these films from all of them were released and there's all kinds of like bad luck involved. Like, you know, when, when Booster McCloud came out, they actually debuted it at the Astrodome and no one could hear a damn thing. Mm-hmm. It was like <laughs> in this big arena. It's uh-huh. probably hard enough to hear his films anyway. I, I remember seeing McCabe and Mrs. Miller once at a, at a festival in like a big like library and you literally could not hear a single line of dialogue in that film, which is already a very murky, you know, uh, audio track to begin with. And then, like, you know, that was similarly, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, you know, had a bad rollout because people couldn't hear the dialogue. And I think with Long Goodbye, I, I, my, my memory is that it was initially not really even released in New York, which is where you need to kind of have, you know, the critics coalesce around it, the Pauline Kales, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and the marketing changed for that film halfway through, like they, they, the, the famous sort of Jack Davis poster for the film 
that makes it look more like kind of a, you know, Animal House-like raucous comedy was the second marketing attempt. And that actually was more successful than the, the first poster, which made it look more like a, a conventional private eye film. Huh, that's interesting. Is New York um, much of a movie town, though? I mean, is that is that a do people <laughs> are they into films there? <laughs> so maybe the good place to start with the with the film is Altman and Gould's conception of Marlowe, because this is uh, one that deviates pretty strongly. Or this is a Marlowe, I suppose, for the times, as I said in the keynote. That opening, of course, borrowed heavily in a film like The Big Lebowski really sort of he's he's a man for his time and his place marlowe so uh, what what did you make of this his conception of that character you know it's it's weird because it is a very 70s version of this detective in the sense that he is you know existing in a world of hippies and um you know uh he's he's kind of hesitant he's he's part of a different kind of culture but at the same time i i think you know i, th- I think the original idea that altman had for this character was that he would literally have been somebody who had been asleep Right for for thirty years that it was sort of a rip a, rip van, van rip van Winkle exactly right. like like yeah he 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 woke up he was the actual original Marlowe who fell asleep in the forties or fifties and woke up in the seventies and is like all right okay I mean which is like <laughs> it's okay by me you know, right. it's what he's, he says over and over again and he's just trying to trying to get along and obviously you know Altman tried throughout the film to contrast. Uh, this version of Marlowe with you know the conventional Hollywood version. I mean, there's there's a lot of Hollywood stuff in this film, uh, yeah. from you know Hooray for Hollywood, which plays at the beginning and the end. There are characters who like imitate you know classic Hollywood actors. <laughs> uh, yes, um, you know there's this sense that the, the the world has changed you know since the time that uh, that that Marlowe was around. But you know what? I mean, I think in the end, it's really not that far removed. It's hard for the fact that he's not essentially a man of action. Until the very end. Um, other, yes. than, other than that, I mean, most detectives, if you read classic detective fiction, do kind of have this sort of hipster, you know, I understand what the world is more than anybody else does, and I'm kind of gliding through it, yeah. doing my thing. Laconic, I guess, is the... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's a very... It's, a, it's the kind of detachment and jadedness you would expect from Chandler's books, but... We kind of with a smile, I guess, and, and a sort of, uh, you know, the the much repeated it's okay by me, you know, attitude. But I do like that it does for all its, you know, deconstruction uh, of, of the genre. It works as a detective movie, as we, as we said before. And I mean, Marlon's a really good detective. Like, he, you know, when, when he's questioning mm. Eileen at, at the beach house, like he just kind of snaps to attention and comes into focus. And you realize, I mean, it's not, it's not Columbo, but it's not that far removed from Columbo where you get this feeling it's someone who's been, whose wheels have been spinning the entire time, even if that's not necessarily evident from the outside. Well, he's a, he has an excellent read on almost every situation. The only thing he does that he's late to get a real read on is his friend, um, yeah. Terry. He doesn't, he doesn't believe that Terry is capable of doing the things that Terry proved himself capable of, of doing, but, but in every other respect, I mean, he, when he goes to find, you know, Roger at the, at the clinic and just kind of gets a sense of, of the room and is like, okay, he's here. So I'm just going to go and walk, just go mm-hmm. walk back and find him. <laughs> you know, there's like, you know, or I'm going to hide this bush. Cause I know I'm going to get, get information that I need here. And I mean, I think that that's part of a strategy in a way because he, people just take him for granted. They, they assume that he's less of a threat, less wily than he turns out to be. And I think, I think Terry makes an extremely poor 
assumption. Maybe we do too about what he's capable of at the very end. But you know, one thing I will say though that again, I, I'm not I'm not hugely familiar with the literary version of Marlowe, but I think there is some effort made here to to paint him as kind of a loser. I mean, this is not <laughs> his bachelor pad is not well appointed. Uh, you know, I mean, we're, we see he him has working. Great view. Let's let's give him that. <laughs> right. It, has, it does have, it really is. I mean, it's a cool, it could be a cool place. It's got potential, but he's not realized that potential. Great neighbors. You can't beat the name. Anyway, but, no. but, the, but the, the, uh, but he's also got, he's got these walls that are lined with the, <laughs> the streaks of him lighting his, uh, matches. It's, he's got, you know, he's, he, we, we, when we first see him, he's waking up, he's being woken up by his, his cat at three o'clock in the morning and, and he goes through this incredible charade where he's trying to fool, the cat into thinking that he's getting his <laughs> his curry bread yeah. cat food, which is just wonderful, and I love it. But I love that the you know, that there's so much time devoted to that specific thing before you would get to anything pertinent. I mean, you get some images of Terry to kind of prime that particular pump, but mostly it's really about establishing Marlowe as a character, and and so they and he does it entirely through this his relationship with his cat, who's terrific. Oh, that's a great that's a great cat performance. I don't know how you get any performance out of a cat if you've had a cat if you had a cat it's, it's impossible but but i love it and i think that line from the clerk uh, um you know what what do i need a cat for i've got a girl is <laughs> that is, that is uh, what they call a sick burn they call that back in the 70s they used to call it a sick burn uh, yeah i mean i think i think it, it really does try to sketch him not just as uh rip von Marlowe, but but as somebody who is uh not one of the winners, uh, not one of society's winners, really, uh, the way he kind of lives his life. But, but I, I think part of what makes Marlowe Marlowe and, 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 and his descendants who they are is like they're losers with integrity and they're losers because of their integrity. I, I feel like you yeah. know, this is someone who, you know, it's, it's a world where anyone with money is suspect. They're they're you know morally suspect just because the things you need to do to get money, the things you need to do to live in that Malibu colony, uh, aren't nice things, you know. And and uh, certainly that's that's a noir trope. It may be a real life trope as well. But I think you know, Marla, someone has to stay outside that system. Yeah, and that's kind of common to detective stories in general. It's why I love them. It's like detectives can sort of go anywhere. They can dwell among mm-hmm. the rich. They can they can also go down to the lowest possible person who can give them the the real information of what what's going on. So yeah, I think it's actually very true. Once again, to you know the, the the whole concept of the private investigator is that he may not be among the rich, but he understands the rich, just like he understands the the person working the door at any particular place. He knows what he knows what they know as well. The bartenders, the doormen, the cabbies, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I mean, and I think that's been a, a you know a traditional function of a lot of noirs and procedurals is just to is because you can follow this character, they can reveal the world of the film to you that way, which is what Altman is all about. You know, so how, how do you? I guess on that front, I mean, where do you see this film's place in the tradition of detective movies and, and film noirs? Like, what was what's Altman trying to pull off with this? Well, I mean, what's funny is it's less, I think, I mean, there is sort of a, a basic noirish concept, which is that, you know, most noir films are about that there is some sort of stain on every human being, and they can go through their entire life without having any realization that they have that stain in front of them until something happens. There's some inciting incident. There's a murder, there's a crime, they're wrongly accused, you know, whatever it might be. And that's the moment when they realize that 
everything that they thought was correct was wrong the whole time. And that kind of mm-hmm. shakes them up. Now, I would not say that's necessarily true of Marlo, who kind of, I think, understands, you know, who he is and the world that he lives in. But certainly the people that he's investigating, everybody seemed to be cruising along just okay, you know, until everything kind of went haywire. And so that's kind of what he, he's sort of the agent who comes along and exposes everything that is wrong. Um, so that's the, that's the connection to the past. What I find more fascinating, you know, Altman, for all of the fact that, you know, he, his films were not extraordinarily popular at the time, with the exception of MASH and Nashville, the influence that he had on popular culture is, I think, seen, if you're somebody who watched a lot of 70s movies, much more so than you might imagine. You watch, like, Spielberg films, for example, and you can, the early, early Spielberg films, you watch Jaws or Sugarland Express, and you hear the overlapping dialogue of Altman, you know, in those films. And when you watch television in the 70s, when you watch Banachek, you watch The Rockford Files, you watch Columbo, I think you sort of see that, you know, long goodbye sort of style. You see that sort of rumpled detective kind of dealing with the world in a very laid back laconic way, you know, without the two-fisted action, I think that's the long goodbye. I think that's, I think you see that almost as much on television detective movies and TV shows than you do in, in movies. Yeah. I mean, I think there's just a more freedom just to loosen up a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It kind of, you know, kind of get a little bit more of the environment not really having to you know paint by the numbers so much but uh, that's interesting it's interesting to think about it as the influences being that immediate because uh, you know as i said in the keynote you know film like the long goodbye is massively influential to a lot of films that we that we've seen you know within the 21st century and inherent vice being being a major one even something like greenberg the i think the way the way greenberg kind of looks and feels feels very long goodbye like to me even though it's not really a, a noir but uh, ended up becoming kind of one of his big major works in that res- in that respect. So I mean, there's a there the, you know we have we have Gould's performance in this film, but we have a lot of other supporting performances as well in this film that are quite intriguing and surprising. I mean, and uh, you know, I don't think we exp- ex- expect you know Jim Booten, the uh, author of Ball Four and of X Ball Player, to turn up as Terry. That's quite interesting. You have a, you have a director, Mark Mark Rydell playing the the Jewish gangster Marty Augustine uh, and of course Sterling Hayden really surprising person to have in a Robert Altman film and apparently Altman absolutely loved him <laughs> so yeah. uh, which I would have expected given politically I would have thought those two would be at such loggerheads that it would have been like a night like it feels as it'd be like Sterling Hayden it would be like the perfect example of somebody who would be absolutely irritated by having to be in a Robert Altman movie but maybe not maybe maybe not uh, but but uh, what, he's any, so any good and like I know that character yeah. kind of reads as Hemingway but I kept thinking he's kind of doing john houston which who of course he would be very familiar with because of the asphalt jungle but he but mm. but like the, the vocal inflections and oh you know the beard and everything uh it, it just it, it kind of plays a lot like you know what we think of when we think of, of john houston maybe, maybe that maybe that's just me maybe that was just uh me picking up on things that, that uh that aren't actually there no I, I think it echoes a little bit with chinatown you know two years later with john houston playing kind of a similar sort of patriarchal older character that is is uh, oh, i mostly went the drunkenness knoll but yeah i guess you're right <laughs> <laughs> it also kind of reminds me a little bit of barton fink of the john mahoney's you know conception of i guess william faulkner or whoever mm. it was he was he was playing there yeah well and i think i think uh, hayden has 
I mean, not only the size, but but the, the you know the beard and everything. I mean, it's just you know I think he was encouraged to really lean into how intimidatingly large he is and uh, kind of frightening, which which then uh, you know also ends up surprising you with the the amount of. Uh, you know vulnerability that's that there's kind of a soft underbelly to that character as, as, as well that becomes surprising as you know frightening as a, fig- a figure as he appears to be i really like henry gibson i mean i always like henry gibson but but it takes something to make gibson feel scary and intimidating particularly next to uh, much taller people, which is basically everyone else <laughs> in the film. Uh, but when he shows up, it's really, uh, especially when he shows up at the party in that one scene, it, it's it's disconcerting. It, 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 he has like such a focused intent and seriousness, seriousness of purpose that he's a little, it's kind of like when Don Rickles shows up in Casino. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's Don Rickles, but for some reason he's scary. It's kind of the same thing here. Yeah, he does not care what people are going to think about him as he walks up and, like, you know, intimidates people. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever power he has, either over the people that are in his circle or with money or whatever it might be. It's amazing to me that, you know, that Altman was able to find some of these folks and kind of, you know, bend them into his movies and use them in ways that they were never really used any other way. Like, like in the, a lot of them were TV actors. Mm. Um, and he found something in them that he could use to, you know, fit into his little, you know, alongside people like Mark Rydell or Jim Bowden, I mean, people that did, do not belong in movies or Nina, you know, Nina Van Polant, who was at the time, I guess, most famous for being the, the lover of, you know, the guy who faked the Howard Hughes diaries, <laughs> you know, that's all she was known for. And he fits, he fits her into this movie somehow. And then he fits them alongside people like Henry Gibson and Hollywood legends like Sterling Hayden. It's, it's kind of, uh, you know, it, it, there's something about his, his methods where he's just able to kind of put people together like a party and just move his camera <laughs> around and follow what's going on in the party. Yep. Arnold Schwarzenegger as well. He can't. Uh, it's a nice, uh, yep. biggest star in the film. He doesn't get a line, or he's not credited, but he's there. Uh, D- David Carradine is is uh, the bunk mate of uh, Marlowe's in, in prison. Has a has a really nice uncredited thing where he does speak. He doesn't give. Uh, unlike Arnold, who just really needs to, you know, be shirtless at one point and uh, be be the ultimate uh, henchman. But yeah, I mean, it it is it, it's wonderful, and I do I do love that Henry Gibson performance because I think that is a character who could very easily be turned into a fool you know and you, get, you do get a really funny line where, where about he's been searching where marlon's been ser- searching for dr Varinger <laughs> and a bunch of patients all at once say hello dr Varinger. <laughs> um uh, but you know again he's not, he's kind of unfazed by that and uh and he he does have a certain menace and it made me want to th- it made me think like what is what's this operation all about i mean there's something there's a lot more happening here that we're really not you know we're only getting a, just a a, a small glimpse of it and uh and, and also just to take the time and this is, speaks to the comedy of the film which is quite strong i mean i think this film is really funny the the security guard uh who does impressions uh that is uh, that to be is that's that's comic gold every single time uh particularly the moment where marlo uh asks uh, says that the guy in the car behind him is really into walter <laughs> brennan <laughs> <laughs> oh that's uh he just he gives he does a great impression uh, it's gets a very cold response very cold response or impression but i love it i love it so what what do you think of the the the, the women in this film and, and about Marlowe's feelings towards them? I mean, he, he doesn't have a girl like the grocery clerk does, but he does seem to have them on his mind. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, you know, he walks out of his door and he sees uh, women doing naked yoga, like, you know, right there. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that what is interesting about the way this film approaches women in detective stories and noir stories is that it sort of exposes the kind of underlying violence towards women that was mm -hmm. frequently, you know, seen in these films, but not really commented on. Um, obviously, the, one of the most famous scenes in the film is where Mark Rydell's character you know, smashes a Coke bottle, you know, in a, in a woman's face, you know, um, and says that I love her and what, what would I do to you, you know, if I did this? You know, the idea that, that, that women are sort of props, you know, they're props for the story. And I think that that's not uncommon in these kind of films, but I think that this movie actually sort of draws attention to the fact that they are not active, you know, I guess, I guess today we would say they don't have agency. Um, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not really their place. And, you know, I, I find that very interesting because, I, you know, compared to a lot of his peers, I think Altman was always very good about giving women, you know, more room to move in his films. Like his, 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 his female characters have dimension and life in a way that, like, they don't necessarily have and say not to, you know, catch aspersions, but on maybe Steven Spielberg's films, for example, or, some, or someone from the, you know, the same general era. You know, era. Mm -hmm. um, but not so much in this film, and I think it's on purpose. I, I don't think it is a an oversight. I think it actually is part of what the point of the film is. Right. Well, Mash, Mash was, Mash was, would be an exception in terms yeah, of Mash, talking Mash about, we're great, talking about, yeah. talking about some, uh, just to go back to some, uh, one of our more contentious episodes of the show, but we don't, but we, don't talk, right. we don't talk about Mash on the next but I mean, show. But you can't <laughs> say, well, you wouldn't say that about it, but you're talking about three women in, in Nashville and all these other things. It's a different okay, story. McCain, Mrs. Miller, incredible character, um, yeah. for sure. That um, Coke bottle I, moment is so yes. bracing. I think I think you're onto something, Scott, where it's, it's like, you know, the violence, that kind of violence tends to be more stylized or happen off screen, screen in noirs. And it is such a, you know, we've had like, it, it, is, it is a fairly tense but low-key confrontation until that moment, which just totally kind of changes the stakes of the film. I do think, I think Eileen, too, is an interesting femme fatale in, the, in that she doesn't have any of the qualities of femme fatale, but she's still plays a role and 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 um you know we get to that final scene uh where you know kind of confirms her her involvement in everything as well she seems like you know he seems very protective of her in many ways like the scene after after uh australian Van, australian hayden's character dies uh you know he's he's very you know like i said protective of her but you know for all the wrong reasons in a way yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of why I it, one of the reasons why I asked this question is because I, I you know, I think it is almost as a lead into the end of the film, because I think that I think it's it's surprising based on what we think we understand about Marlowe that he would take the action that he does mm -hmm. uh, against Terry. And I almost feel like it's informed by these experiences he's had with women. There's I feel like that. that I feel like there's a certain buildup of. I mean, obviously, he's very angry with his his friend for this terrible betrayal. But I think there's kind of a uh, a lot of abuse that he has kind of witnessed, um, you know, and in, in, in murder and exploit, you know, and violence. I feel like all of that kind of builds up, you know, to this to this moment where he just shoots him dead. What did you, what did you think of the ending of this movie? I find it really heartbreaking. You know, I've, I've, this is someone who is jaded and and cynical, but not without attachments. I mean, this is the only person we really see him 
have you know having a friend you know who a, a true friend i mean he's he's nice to people at the bar but i get the feeling that's a fairly you know casual uh relationship i mean he and he develops feelings for, for eileen and, and kind of like in the end he has nothing to hold on to he doesn't even have his cat as he says <laughs> everything's uh everything's gone yeah i mean they put that sort of ironic ending at the you know um where he walks down the pathway and um Hooray for Hollywood, you know, plays once again, but I it can't really mask the fact that that was a really sort of tragic moment for him that he had to, whether whether he had to or not, he felt compelled to to pull the trigger. It's, uh, it's very sad. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- though it is kind of odd, that last bit, because there is something, it, there's this reintroduction of lightness to the very, very end of the film that that does kind of contrast with what he's, he's just done. He just sort of wanders off and and you know he gets passed in in the car by eileen and he start gets breaks out the harmonica that he's gotten from the uh from the man at the hospital that that is is kind of an odd odd touch though i think it's another case where the end of that film just the the setting of it is so vivid for some like i like you forget you can forget everything visually i mean it's vilma zygmunt does a you know an absolutely terrific job of filming this film throughout but like the you know the two scenes sequences that stand out you know to me and that are always in my head when i think about the long goodbye is the the ending and, and walking along that that pathway and then of course the scene at the uh, wade's beach house where you mm. get multiple images being kind of you know through through the that are we see reflections through the window and it, it's just it's so gorgeous <laughs> i don't even know what to say about that's, it that's one of the most altman moments in the film is the you know saying things through the window Wait, windows and reflections are a huge part of his mise-en-scene, so yeah. Oh man, it is really just on a pure filmic level, something to behold, both of those sequences. As for the ending, I feel like him kind of picking up the double-may-care attitude and playing the harmonica, I think it's kind of, in some ways, it's a little bit of a, I don't want to say happy ending, but it is Marlowe remains Marlowe. You know, he's he's been to the bottom, but he's, he's you know, he's going to be, remain essentially the same person. It's also, um, I mean, I just because I just watched it again, but, you know, it's it's the third man, right? I mean, it's kind of the same, even yeah. set up to look like the third man. Yeah, and Wells is one of Altman's heroes. Um, you know, he, he doesn't really talk too much in his... Uh, interviews and things about filmmakers that he was a huge fan of, but I know that he loved Wells. He liked people who tried to make the frame come alive. Um, I, remember, I remember, you know, I, I interviewed him once and I've read lots of things about him, about, you know, his work. And one of the reasons he moved the camera all the time is that he felt like, you know, he had to. He felt like, like otherwise it was just a box. He wanted to explore the box. He wanted to explore the space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so moving the camera, putting things, you know, in different different um, planes, you know, forward and backward. Uh, these were all the things he found made the made a movie a movie and wasn't just, you know, uh, something static. So, yeah, definitely. Third Man is a, a key, a key, a key thing for him, I think. It's interesting how too how how willing he is to just throw away a lot of a lot of stuff that that people would cling to in making a movie like this, like the book. I mean, like like coming out and admitting, hey, I read the beginning and the end, and <laughs> you know, and, and or just you know, or having to kind of rework the end and, uh, the the way he he wanted to do it, and or you know, having a lot of I I you know just you know it, it, you know staging the scenes between Hayden and and Gould in kind of an imp- improvisatory way. I mean, there's a lot of things that he just is willing to experiment on you know he, he's a, gives you that impression of a, of a artist who goes in with as few preconceived notions as, as possible or at least allows himself some room to kind of like paint 
really on the spot, um, which is just not what not a comfortable way of doing film production. You're supposed to be prepared and know every, what every what every shot's going to be, and and there's kind of a level there's a there's an element of spontaneity and intuitiveness uh, and curiosity to Altman's work that does make it lively. Yeah, I mean, he could be a little disingenuous about that. I think like at times he talks about how, oh, we didn't really have a script or we didn't really. And I think a lot of people who worked with him would say that, you know, that that's a little insulting. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. you, know, uh, you know, particularly um, the name is Flynn, Flynn out of my head, but the screenwriter of, uh, of Nashville. John Tewksbury. Joan Tewksbury, the Nashville and Thieves Like Us. I mean, she did a lot of work with him. Um, and those were, you know, she wrote those movies. I mean, and, you know, yeah. there, there's improvisation, but, you know. There's also a structure. And I think, like I said, I think Long Goodbye actually does sort of follow the book in a lot of ways, even though there's things that are that are moved around. I think Lee Brackett's contributions are a little underrated. Um, she, you know. she she really enjoyed her experiences with with Altman. Uh, it was she was on she was really I, I did read that piece of his biography and and um and she, she seemed to really like that like the process. She liked images like big, big fan of images was like ready to, you know, she, she was interestingly flexible thinker you know yeah but you're right i mean he did like improvise on the spot and try to think what would work at the moment you know and and uh and the, i think the problem that all would have post nashville is that frequently he would just assume that oh i got a great idea i've got every actor in hollywood wants to work with me let's all get together and just see what happens and then it turns into buffalo bill and the indians or a wedding or health <laughs> movies that are fine i mean they have their moments you know or much later in his career you know ready to wear um, but you can right. tell that you can tell that like about two thirds of the way through, he realized, yeah, this isn't really working. Um, but I've got another movie lined up for two months from now. So let's just wrap this up. Yeah. Well, there's like, <laughs> like it, there's kind of a lack of architecture there. You need a little bit, you need a little bit of architecture, a little bit of structure, a little yeah. bit of direction in order for the rest of the stuff to kind of work around it rather than just like, yeah, if you get too, you know, wishy-washy in terms of the conceit, then, then things can kind of, kind of get out of control. Yeah, so so again, when you look at what, what movies of his that actually work and why they work, I think you have to look at something like The Long Goodbye, and it's all those things we talked about. It's the fact that it has some sort of a structure, um, and it has these you know memorable, memorable characters, some of which are from Marlowe, I mean, some of which are from Chandler, some of which are from you know the actors doing their own individual spins on it. So I mean, you know, it, it's 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 an Altman film through and through. But the Altman films that work, I think, have, you know, full buy-in from multiple people. And we haven't even mentioned, I, I, real quick before we move on, I, I know we're running out of time, but two names that we need to mention. You mentioned Vilma Zygmunt earlier, mm -hmm. but we, we need to mention him again because, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the look of that film, which I think he describes in the commentary track on the DVD as being like trying to look like po old faded postcards of Los Angeles. That's what he was trying to get across. Oh, yeah. And that's just amazing. And the other is we haven't, we haven't mentioned John Williams. I know. Why I did know. we do? Why? Why? That, I mean, for, the, the different versions of The Long Empire is so great. It's one of the I mean, it's best wild to think about John Williams' career as somebody who, you know, became known as the, the go-to guy for Spielberg and Lucas and these huge uh, blockbusters. But early in his career, he's working with Altman and De Palma and doing these like really weird pastiche things and um yeah so yeah his sporting images is is really aggressively avant-garde too it's not what you think of as john williams at all yeah he, he was he was a he was a new hollywood auteur as much as you know, any of those guys in his own way for a time Zygmunt's great and Zygmunt i mean he he just kept working to do like it's like i don't know if I, it was one of his some of his last work was on on the mindy projects i i, I like the idea of someone who is just so dedicated to just showing up and doing a job it's like okay yeah you want to we want to work with me Bill Stigman, to shoot your sitcom i'll do that <laughs> 
well, we'll we'll uh, get a chance to talk more Zygmunt and more Altman uh, on our next episode when we bring in Confess Fletch. But until uh, then, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion and anything else in the world of film. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us and other listeners, or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback. A few weeks ago, we did an episode on The Thief of Baghdad. But our discussion did not touch on the actor who played the djinn in that one. Keith, could you read this letter from Ian? Sure. I enjoyed this episode, but unless I missed it, none of you spoke the name of Rex Ingram, who played the djinn, and instead it seemed to treat the character as a special effect rather than a performance. I know it wasn't intentional, but this doesn't seem a very respectful way to treat one of the most acclaimed African-American film and theater actors of the 1930s and 1940s, and the only person of color other than Sabu to have a major role in the film. Rex Ingram has significant roles in two pioneering black musicals, playing Adam and Delaud in Green Pastures, and the latter's opposite number, Lucifer Jr. in Cabin in the Sky. He is terrific as Sudan Defense Force Sergeant Major Tambul in Zoltan Korda's 1943 film Sahara, who first enters the film with sympathetic Italian prisoner J. Carroll Nash in tow. Nash got an Oscar nomination. Ingram should have. After a captured Nazi captain kills the Italian soldier for denouncing fascism and not helping him escape, Tambul tracks down and kills the Nazi before he can give away the position of Humphrey Bogart's tank to the German battalion searching for them. His gen is, with Sabu's Abu, the best remembered performance in Thief of Baghdad, and was so popular that he essentially recreated the role in 1945's A Thousand and One Nights, in which Cornell Wilde played Aladdin, and Phil Silvers, believe it or not, was his pickpocket sidekick, Abdullah. I love you guys. I hope you did at least say his name, and I missed it. We didn't, and I'm sorry, no. and you know what? Yes. I, I meant to, because I was really taken with that performance, but I mean, I you know, have to make excuses, but in, in the in the give and take uh, of, of podcasting, sometimes you, you come in with things you want to talk about, and you just don't get to them. Uh, that is a big oversight. Uh, and I was, you know, certainly intrigued by this letter to seek out more of his films that I have not seen. So I feel like your very detailed, uh, 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 you know, the description of, of highlights from his career, uh, hopefully will make up for that oversight. Uh, so yes, you know, hats, hats off to Rex Ingram, who is uh, terrific in this film and, you know, our apologies for all the, uh, Ingram fans out there who, uh, noticed the oversight. Yeah, and I, I did really enjoy the the back and forth between those two characters. I mean, it's, it is one one of the wonderful comic moments in in the in the movie where where uh, when when Sabu uh, gives the Jin the business um, a little bit, and and uh, and and I think there's a, a lot uh, to this performance of Rex Ingram. So I I I, I, th- I think we're just going to take the hit on this one. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was a name and a performance that we did not. Uh, I will say though, up, he he. Ingram doesn't get credit for the giant foot. That is a, a special effect and one of the one of the most uh, the most one of my favorite special effects in the film. But for the rest of the performance, it's all his. Yes, yeah, the, the foot is a lie, but the uh, performance <laughs> is the truth. Uh, so we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Mm-hmm. 
that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll watch another wily slacker fumble his way through a mystery and confess Fletch. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us at Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, work on your Walter Brennan impression. The guy in the podcast behind us is a big fan. Don't you try to be nice to me now. I'm leaving and it's goodbye. I ain't running after you in the rain when you're catching a plane. No more. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. I'm through, I'm through this time and I mean it. In fact, I don't know if I ever even did like you except for your body. Your body was good. Well, let's say so long.